the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Inside Out with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, do you feel upset about Iraq? This time, let's get clear, informed, and involved before it's too late. In 2003, we were manipulated into war with lots of hype and very little information. The result? We helped destabilize Iraq, now embroiled in never-ending sectarian violence, and we feel lost in the quagmire. Many of us feel guilty, upset, or confused. What do we do now? Bomb? Invade? Bury our heads in the sand? Let's face this challenge together and do three things differently. Let's get solid information before we act. Let's talk honestly about our feelings, guilt, fear, anger, so we can face the latest challenges calmly, knowledgeably, and courageously. Let's get involved. For solid information, we welcome James Galvin, author of four books and professor of middle, modern Middle East history at UCLA, who will give us the historic context of what's happening in the Mideast and our role in it. For honest discussion, we've got Beth Green. So stay tuned, get involved. Call, share, and help your friends by passing on the podcast. Then join our post-show forum to continue the conversation. And now here's Beth from the Inside Out. Hi, welcome to our show this week. Well, for those of you who follow Inside Out, you were expecting a different show. We were going to talk about taking a stand. And uh, this was following up on some shows that we've been having about things in the news, climate change, and how do we feel when we watch the news, and you know what stops us from taking a stand, and how does that impact us. But because of what's going on in Iraq, it felt right to move that show up a week and we'll be announcing it at the end of this show, and to start talking about what's going on in Iraq. Now, I, I want, and it's not just Iraq, of course, it's the whole Middle East, but specifically about Iraq. So I want to start out with, you know, our inside-out thing, which is that we get honest here about how we're feeling. And I want to tell you, honestly, that I wish Iraq would just disappear I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't want to feel shitty about it anymore. When, and I want to share with you that when we invaded Iraq in 2003, where we were told there was weapons of mass destruction and that they were re- somehow responsible for 9-11, all of which was not true, I felt very upset then and was out there campaigning to try to get people to really think about what was going on in the Middle East and try to understand why there was a 9-11 and stop having these black and white images, they're bad, we're good, all that stuff. And also speaking about the history of Iraq. And, and so and none of this made any sense to me. Invading Iraq was just seemed crazy. But we did it. And there we are. And it seems like it just went from bad to worse because we had Saddam Hussein who was a dictator but who kept some kind of stability that's the way it looked to me 
know, I'm not an expert, right? I'm just talking as a person who's watching the news. And uh, we, we went in there and we bombed the nation and we kind of got a lot of things moving. And now we're sort of stuck with all the sectarian violence that we helped or it seems to me that we contributed to. So I don't even want to know about it because every time I look at it, I think, oh, my God, what would have happened if we hadn't invaded Iraq? Now, I'm not telling you that I thought that Saddam Hussein was a good guy. Uh, but there is a difference between thinking somebody is a good guy and going in and thinking you know what to do about it. Uh, you know, it's so easy for us. and I don't know why it's easy. I don't know how to solve my own problems. Do you? So... <laughs> <laughs> you know, who are we to think that we can solve everybody else's problems? But we don't even, two things, we have very little information as a public. You know, most of us took very little history, and the little history we took didn't teach us much, okay? Let's face the fact. And then on top of that, you know, we have a lot of opinions, we have inflammatory news stories, and we have a government that has its own agenda that's trying to manipulate us. So, you know... How are we supposed to know really what's going on? And even though I actually studied history, uh, the history of the Middle East, I don't want to tell you how many years ago. It was in the 70s. That'll give you an idea. At UCLA, where our esteemed guest comes from, uh, there's a very developed Middle Eastern studies program at UCLA. And um, I knew a little bit more then than I do now, but I've forgotten what I knew, and I don't know that much. So the first thing I know is I have to stop not wanting to think about Iraq because life goes on. In fact, now there's a new government in Iraq with all kinds of confusion that I don't understand. There's people up in mountains who are dying because they've been cut off by this organization called ISIS. Every time I read about Iraq, every time I hear the news, I just feel sick because I feel like, oh, my God, what's going on there? What are we responsible for and what can we do? And then I have this horrible pain in my heart when I think about the American soldiers going over. You know, I used to be a radical, like I was against the war in Vietnam. But at that time, I really only was thinking about the Vietnamese. Today, I'm much older, and I think about the American soldiers, too, and what they're going through. And can you imagine going back to Iraq, having more people going back into the service over and over and over, becoming traumatized, more PTSD, more traumatic brain injury? It's just, oh, my God, what a moral dilemma and how little information we have. So I am asking you, if you haven't hung up already, knowing you know, hung up on the show, knowing now that we're going to talk about Iraq, are you hanging in there or are you leaving? <laughs> Don't go away. This is an opportunity for us to talk honestly about whether we're trying to bury our heads in the sand, if we're looking for a simple-minded solution, how we really feel. <sighs> start releasing some of that energy so we can start thinking. And let's get some information so with no further ado, I would like to introduce you to our guest. I'm so pleased that he was willing to come on our show on such short notice. It's Professor James Gelvin from UCLA's, uh, and he's an expert, if anybody's an expert in anything, right? In, but he's a heck of a lot more of an expert than we are, isn't he? In modern Middle East history. And 
I am so happy to have him here because I think we need information and we don't need more hype. We don't need hysteria. We don't need the media, which gets us all revved up, telling us, oh, my God, oh, my God. We don't need a lot of opinions. We need some facts to start with, and we need a place to share how we feel as well. So I'd like to introduce Professor Gelvin to our audience and start out right away by asking him some fundamental questions about how did we get into this mess and why, just to start with. And also, please feel free to call in and share how you feel as we go along through the show. So, Jim, are you there? I'm here, and I appreciate being asked. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the fact, you know, I was thinking about the wonderful resource that we have in our universities and how little we use them. (laughs) You know, you guys spend your whole lives trying to understand things that most of us don't have the information to understand or the training or the time. And I love this. And uh, I, I so appreciate that we have you and that I feel like, oh, my goodness, there's somebody that I can turn to to bring information to our audience because we are, like, starving for it. So please start out with... I know we don't have the time to really discuss the entire history of the Middle East and make sense of any of this, but just to give us the beginning glimpse and foundation of how we got into Iraq and why it's such a mess. Well, uh, it's a real mystery, actually, why we got into Iraq in 2003. (laughs) My guess is as good as yours. Um, I really am not quite sure. Um, people have mentioned everything from edible pro- uh, problems that George W. Bush had, you know, uh, trying <laughs> to his father, uh, to the evil influence of Dick Cheney, uh, etc. I, I really don't know um, why. Or oil, oil, that was thrown out a lot. Oil was also uh, thrown out, but I mean, basically, um, it really was a, a, a non-issue uh, to begin with. I mean. We've got the marvelous democracy of Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, <laughs> our, our oil. So uh, we really didn't need Iraqi oil. Yeah. Um, you know, the defense contractors, I mean, the usual suspects. Yes. But um, the one thing that's interesting is that um, if we look at the people who got us there, they are of a grouping that began to emerge in the 1970s. And they were a grouping that began to emerge in the 1970s as uh, opposed to the realpolitik of the Nixon administration and the Ford administration, and particularly the policies of Henry Kissinger. And uh, the thing that... Could you explain to our audience what you mean by that? Because a lot of people won't know that term. Okay. Um, Kissinger was what they call in political science parlance a realist. In other words, his attitude was America has no special mission in the world. America is not a shining city on a hill, um, that we're no different from any other nation in the world, that we have interests. Our job is to protect those interests. Those interests will be protected by establishing a balance of power between the great powers. And so he pursued detente, for example. Um, while others said, how can you have detente with the Soviet Union? How can you have a, sort of a, an easing of tensions with this, what Ronald Reagan later called, evil empire? Right. So 
Kissinger was pushing these sort of policies, and as a backlash, a group of a group of uh, politicians, academics, et cetera, et cetera, pulled together a uh, a movement that was later called neoconservatism. And neoconservatives believe in that the United States has a special mission in the world, that the United States um, uh, has to uh, democratize the world, has to make everybody, put everybody on the same page, that the United States cannot trust international institutions, that the United States cannot trust uh, those cheese-eating Frenchmen, for example. So, <laughs> the French uh, fries. Right. The freedom fries. I remember the freedom that. fries, yeah. Right. Uh, that so therefore we have to go it alone, and uh, we have to do it ourselves. And these people began to actually emerge and infiltrate the government. And George W. Bush Bush brought them along, um, and they were the ones who set the Iraq policy. The idea of, for example, uh, going in there, doing it alone, um, uh, ensuring that. Um, uh, we would we would set up the government, the transitional government, and I mean, that sort of thing. So this you could see as a laboratory experiment of neoconservatism, similar probably to the laboratory experiment of Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> I have a question though. I don't want sure. to get too esoteric because probably most of our listeners aren't going to be as interested in those details as I am. But Henry Kissinger, I think of Vietnam. You know, he, that didn't feel like real politique and detente. That felt like, I don't know, insane mission to, you know, stop the yellow peril uh, of the Chinese communists. So, I mean, it seems, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, of course. I'm just asking you, how does that fit together? Well, I mean, Kissinger didn't get us into Vietnam. Um, we got into Vietnam in the Johnson administration, and maybe even before that, there were 5,000 advisors under the Kennedy administration. What Kissinger was attempting to do was to extricate the United States from Vietnam, not because he was a particularly nice guy. It's hard to say that about war criminals. Yeah. Um, but simply because he felt it was a distraction. Um, and so uh, what he was attempting to do uh, overall, and he had this huge framework that he was attempting to set up, was to triangulate the United States in Moscow and Beijing, um, and to create a new balance of power there, and to lessen the tensions with the Soviet Union, again, not because he was a nice guy, but simply because the threat of nuclear war was too horrifying, actually. So um, uh, he uh, did what he did uh, in Vietnam including um, the Christmas bombings, uh, in effect, to just end the damn thing already um, and um, move on. And then we get this period of the 1970s, a period of detente, the period in which uh, we had to overlook the fact that uh, the Soviet Union uh, was an oppressive regime, um, simply to get along. Uh, and this is what really upset the neocons. And by the way, the neocons come in all varieties and all parties as well. Scoop Jackson, from the, the, uh, who they used to call the senator from Boeing, the senator from Washington <laughs> State, uh, he was a neocon. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who switched parties and later became a uh, Democrat, uh, Democratic senator from New York, he was a neocon. Um, so it's not just one party or the other that it was. It's more of a, of a, of a tendency, of a political tendency. So this is a real ideologically driven group. 
Now, why Iraq and what was the impact of our sticking our foot in this? Why Iraq is a mystery. Um, uh, I have no clue as to why. I mean, there's a very good reason why the United States went into Afghanistan. Yes. There was not a good reason why we stayed in Afghanistan, but there's a very good reason for going into Afghanistan. Why we took the eye off the prize and turned our attention mm. to Iraq is something that is a, that is a mystery. So uh, let's go beyond the why and get to what was, we have a couple of minutes before a break, and uh, I'd love to encourage people to call in with their questions, but in the few minutes before our break, tell us, what did we get into, <laughs> and what did we do? Well, what you said in your introduction is, is true. I mean, and there's two aspects of Saddam, Saddam Hussein. I mean, number one, he was a vicious killer, and number two, um, he kept that uh, region stable. Now, if you look at, for example, American allies in the region, um, we have more than our share of vicious killers on our side. Yes. Um, you know, and people who, uh, for example, the uh, Arab uprisings recently have tried to get rid of various despots and, and autocrats throughout the area. And um, when it comes to just real pure evil as a regime, I don't think you can top the Saudi Arabians, for example. Um, so uh, why Saddam? I don't know. But the thing was that we did target him and we did take apart a country that he had managed to keep together through both brutality and through a process known as coup proofing, which was a, profit, a process whereby a minority, uh, minority rules, uh, uh, the minority communities would circle their wagon around the regime, that you would create these multiple security forces with various overlapping jurisdictions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And he was able to maintain himself in power in that way. Mm. And in the process, he kept the country together and it kept him from splitting into this sectarian violence. Well, let me say a couple of things about sectarian violence. And I realize that you're going into a commercial, so uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Yeah. Good. Please do. I mean, not be brief, but you come back and we'll continue. But yeah, try to, to help us understand this stuff. Okay. Americans misread sectarianism. It's not a default position of Middle Easterners or of Arabs or of Muslims, okay? It has nothing to do with, uh, has very little to do with religion, actually. I mean, mm -hmm. Shis are not killing Sunnis, and Sunnis are not killing Shis uh, because uh, they worship in different ways or have different rituals. I mean, fundamentally, what sectarianism is, is a... Um, process whereby your political identity and your uh, religious identity overlap. And therefore, you use your religious identity to make demands on the state. I want more representation in uh, the capital city, for example, or in parliament. I want more jobs for my people, etc. Now, who does this sort of thing? Well, it's, just, it's not natural. Sectarianism is a very new phenomenon in the Middle East, a modern phenomenon in the Really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people knew they were different. People knew that Alawites were different from uh, Sunnis and that Shis were different from, from um, uh, Sunnis. 
But it wasn't organized in that way. It took modern politics to create sectarianism. It took it so that people would lodge demands for political participation or greater representation or more goodies from the central government on the basis of the horizontal ties that connected them with other members of their religious community. And who would do this? Well, a government would do this, for example, would encourage sectarianism, like, for example, what the, what the Syrian government is doing now. Why would a government encourage sectarianism? Well, if you're an Alawite government, you get all the Alawites and all the Christians to support you by saying that, you know, it's those awful Sunnis that are going to get you mm -hmm. uh, if, if they don't support you, for example. Uh, it's political entrepreneurs, uh, people like um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in uh, Iraq, uh, uh, al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, for example. He created the sectarian war of 2007 merely as a mobilizing tool to mobilize the Sunni community. First they blew up Shia mosques, then Shis, of course, retaliated, and then you had tit-for-tat stuff. And then all of a sudden what you got was these two communities looking at, over the fence at each other, hating each other, and Zarqawi saying, okay, look, we're, we're Al-Qaeda. We will defend you. You, you. you come to us, to the Sunni community. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by political entrepreneur. Mm. That's what sectarianism is created. Um, I need to interrupt you because we do need to go to commercial break, but when you said, I'm just asking you something that I'm going to ask you to answer later, uh, you talked about it as being a modern phenomenon. Is it the result of colonialism or is it the result of like recent history? I don't know if anybody else out there is interested, but I sure want to know how to read the news. And you're giving us some background and I appreciate it. But right now we're going to commercial break. Don't go away. If any of you have any upset or concern or feelings about Iraq and the Middle East, Stay and get informed. Thank you. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. 
To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Welcome back to Inside Out. We are so happy today to be talking, not that we're happy to be talking about Iraq because it's a miserable situation, but we're happy to be talking to Professor James Gelvin from UCLA, who is a professor of modern Middle Eastern history, who is trying to give us a context so we can have some understanding of what's going on in our world. And we're not just being pushed around by our emotions like when George Bush got us into the Iraq war it was through creating so much fear well I don't want that to happen again you know I don't want us just to be manipulated by the powers that be in our country in order to do something that we don't understand that maybe nobody understands so um, this is so important for us to get informed and remember you can listen to this podcast again and again and again and again and send it out to your friends so that if you get lost somewhere in the explanation come back listen again you know this is such a valuable moment for us to be able to get some information that can help guide us and don't hesitate to call in I know people usually call into the show you may feel a little bit intimidated in this case but uh, if you feel so inspired please call in and ask your question but in the meantime uh, uh, Jim I was asking you because uh, uh, Professor Gelvin was just talking about how the sectarianism that we assume is just oh the Arabs are like that right all Muslims are like that which is the way they're portrayed, I think, in our media. It's like that this sectarianism is actually new. And by the way, in the, uh, the 40 years ago when I did study Middle Eastern history and I studied history, you know, I discovered that uh, there was more detente between Arabs and Jews, <laughs> uh, you know, five centuries ago than we'll, we'll ever see now. And uh, it's uh, what we what we assume is to be natural of Muslims is not just because they're Muslims, that there's something that happens to people, there's history, there's conditions, there's circumstances that make people behave the way they do. And uh, our guest today is helping us to understand that for the Middle East and specifically for Iraq. So coming back to this, just for you to elucidate a little further, are you saying that the sectarianism, which is what we're told is the cause of everything, is, uh, is be, it comes out of modern history as in since colonialism or since the end of colonialism or is very recent? Uh, it's a 19th century phenomenon. It's thick uh, nationalism. The difference between sectarianism and, let's say, a religious-based nationalism, let's say Irish nationalism or a nationalism like that, Hindu nationalism, the only difference is, is that nationalists demand sovereignty. Sectarians demand a bigger place at the table. That's the only mm. difference between the two. So what would you call ISIS? Uh... ISIS is a, is a very, very different sort of phenomenon. I'll get into that in a minute. Let, let me just Thank say you. Two, yes. a couple more things about, about sectarianism. Uh, number one, you asked about colonialism and sectarianism. And yes, colonialism wasn't the only cause for sectarianism because there were indigenous leaders as well who thought that they could play the sectarian card 
and, for example, um, uh, advance their community and their own interests in the meantime by doing so. And then there's many examples about how uh, sectarianism was imposed from the outside. For example, in Algeria, um, uh, Jews and Muslims got along fairly well until something called the Cremio Decree uh, was uh, promulgated in the 19th century. Uh, the decree said that Jews are sort of like civilized, they're like us. Muslims are not civilized, they're not like us. So Jews automatically got French citizenship. Thereby what happened was you created a cleavage between the two communities because Muslims were not capable of getting French citizenship. Okay? This happens on, on multiple occasions. People went into the region, colonialists went into the region, and they had uh, their training in the classics, they had their training in the Bible, they viewed everything through religion, and so what they did was they hired, for example, in, in, in Syria, they uh, hired the Alawites to become soldiers uh, during the French uh, colonial period in Syria uh, because they could trust them. They were a minority group. They weren't the majority group who they couldn't trust. So therefore, let's, let's make these guys our uh, military people. Well, this, of course, created a sense of uh, esprit de corps among them and also a hatred for them or a differentiation between them and the other communities. But let me tell you something else about sectarianism. We look at it as being like primordial, as being there, as being fixed and so on and so forth. Up until 2003, 30% of the marriages in Iraq were between Shi'is and Sunnis. People in Syria knew the difference between Alawites and Sunnis. But there was a public civility between them. They didn't kill each other. And the reason why there's a public civility is they, they rode the same uh, public transportation. They went to the same schools. They shopped in the same grocery stores. You know, they, they basically had to get along, and they got along. Mm -hmm. Now what you have, after all these years of war since 2011, is you have a Syria that will never be put back together again in the same way. Same thing with Iraq. Um, that uh, the sectarian cleavages that are in Iraq are inscribed actually in the Constitution. Um, that certain uh, uh, provinces get a certain number of seats in Parliament based upon their population, and the uh, uh, provinces tend to be homogeneous in terms of uh, uh, makeup Sunni, Shi, Kurd, whatever. Okay. So that what we're seeing in Iraq after the American invasion is a sectarianization, a permanent sectarianization of the politics there. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, this is my greatest fear. So it's our fault. Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall and we'll never put it back together again. Uh, well, if this is your greatest fear, then, then let me tell you about ISIS, okay? Yes. Uh, I just I want to tell you we have a caller. Okay. Um, I'd like to bring her on, and then I want to come back to ISIS, because I think we're all sitting here wondering what we should do about ISIS. But first, let's bring on Helen from California. Hi. Well, that was exactly my question is, you know, I'm finding this really fascinating, but I keep wondering, other than voting for someone who holds the same opinion I do, what can I do to support the situation and to, you know pray for, for non-sectarianism, I, I don't know what to do. 
Thank you. I, I, you know, you speak from my heart, Helen. Thank you for your question. So, uh, Jim, that I think gives us carte blanche to go on. Tell us about ISIS and what should we do? Well, uh, first of all, um, I'm doing what I do, which is I'm making sure that as many people as possible uh, understand exactly what's going on and can therefore act on it in whatever ways they want to act on it. Yeah. The voting booth. Uh, petitions, demonstrations, whatever. Okay, but the thing is, is that you have to know the basic facts. Here are the yes. basic facts about ISIS. ISIS is a purely evil organization. It is what's called a takfiri organization. Okay, which makes it even worse than Al Qaeda. What I mean by takfiri is that um, uh, takfiris believe it's my way or the highway. In other words, they believe that unless Muslims do exactly what they do, they're not Muslims. Mm. They're apostates. And so, therefore, can be killed. So, even within the Muslim community, these guys are uh, you know, vicious murderers. Then there are what they're doing with, for example, other minority groups. Um, the uh, Muslim uh, world has a long history with Christianity and Judaism. Now Judaism not so much, simply because of um, the establishment of the state of Israel and most Jews ended up there, uh, Arab Jews ended up there, but Christians, for example. And there were ways in which Muslims dealt with Christians in the past. And that was they paid an extra tax, a poll tax, or, or they could convert, uh, or if they refused to do either, they, they could die. It's as simple as that. They were peoples of the book and peoples of the book were to be saved. Yazidis are different for ISIS. Yazidis are considered by ISIS to be devil worshippers because of a very, very strange um, uh, theology that they have. Um, and uh, Yazidis uh, are unsavable. Uh, Christians, for example, became Christians in the Middle East before the rise of Islam. Yazidis became Yazidis after the 11th century. They already made their choice their choice could have been Islam, but it was to become Yazidis instead. They are a sect that is very uh, eclectic. They bring in all sorts of bits and pieces from um, Islam, from Zoroastrianism, from ancient Roman religions even, and they combine them together into a very, very special religion. There's about 600,000 of them, six to 700,000 of them around the world. ISIS hates these people um, and uh, is more than willing to, as the word was dropped by Barack Obama already, commit genocide um, against these people, against an entire people. Who is ISIS? ISIS um, came out of uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia. Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia had very bad relations with Al-Qaeda Central, uh, bin Laden and Zawahiri, uh, simply because uh, they were uh, Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, were takfiris, my way, the highway. And so... Tell, tell uh, people where Mesopotamia is. Mesopotamia is the old name for the area that's now Iraq. And the reason why um, uh, they call themselves Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia is that Al-Qaeda does not believe in nation states. So they don't believe in Al-Qaeda in, for example, Saudi Arabia or Yemen. It's Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. 
It's Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, in Islamic North Africa. They use the names, territorial names, but not nation state names. Anyway, ISIS came out of this thing I was describing earlier, um, Zarqawi. Zarqawi was killed by the Americans, very famous incident that your listeners probably remember. Um, Al-Qaeda in uh, Iraq was pretty much destroyed um, uh, by the awakening, the so-called awakening uh, in uh, 2007. Um, and uh, these guys dispersed, and, and these organizations... They come together, they split apart, they blackball each other, and all of a sudden, over time, what you get is uh, the uh, Islamic State of Iraq. The Islamic State of Iraq, uh, uh, two years ago, decides, hey, we're going to take over this other franchise in Syria. So they change their name to the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Okay. Um, the people in Syria, of course, didn't want to be taken over, so they complained to Al-Qaeda Central. Al-Qaeda Central said, you can't do this. And the head of what was called then ISIS, uh, the Islamic State in um, Iraq and Syria, thumbed its nose at Al-Qaeda and said, you know, screw you. Uh, we, we do what we want to do. They launched this lightning campaign. Uh, first of all, they're classified as members of the opposition in Syria, and that's sort of a misnomer. Because until recently, they had not really been fighting the Assad government. They had been fighting other opposition movements. And the fighting that takes place, if you notice where a lot of the fighting is uh, that uh, ISIS has been involved in, takes place in the eastern part of Syria. And the reason why it does is because that's where the oil is. That's where the money is. Okay? That's how you can keep your organization alive. Somebody described what's going on in Syria now as Mad Max meets the Sopranos. And that's exactly what's going on in Syria. Anyway, um, ISIS um, uh, sets up camp in Syria. They take over a city in north-central Syria. And then in this lightning campaign, they move south, uh, take over Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, and then head down towards Baghdad. Now, um, uh, a couple of things. First of all, it's not that they were unstoppable and that, you know, they're like these incredible fighters and so on and so forth. They, they had several advantages, one of which was that the Iraqi army just melted away because the prime minister of Iraq, the government of Iraq, is so corrupt that they didn't want to fight and die for this guy. So they just melted away. The second thing is that they had on their side former Baathi officers, former uh, uh, military officers who served under Saddam Hussein, professionals who can actually tell them how to mount a real campaign. Now, one of the reasons why I'm optimistic that these guys are going to fall apart is that the military officers, on the one hand, were the people who threw the uh, uh, ISIS types in jail under Saddam Hussein. They're not going to, it's not going to stick together, this alliance. And already there's been fighting between the two groups. The other thing is necessary to know about ISIS is that it's very small. It's only eight to 10, uh, eight to 10,000 people. Okay. They think that the city of Mosul fell under attack from four to 800 people. Okay. Not very much at all. And they're trying to control a huge amount of territory. They're extraordinarily unpopular wherever they rule. 
uh, simply because they demand all sorts of things from, from the population. They inflict punishments on uh, the population for such infractions as, as smoking or uh, uh, having alcohol. Uh, it, it's actually very interesting. It probably is the most effective anti-smoking campaign in history. <laughs> um, they uh, have committed mass rapes. They, um, I mean, think of it this way. These, these guys are supposed to be like puritanical believers. And one right. of the is, is mass rape that they do. They, they do crucif crucifixions. Yeah. They, uh, but I, I also read, though, that they are, you know, giving out uh, stuff to the people and they're trying to make themselves popular. Do, do you don't believe that that's really happening? No. Uh, well, uh, this, Yeah. I mean, I mean, basically, what, what's going on now is because they have so much territory and because there are so few of them, they've had to back off. Mm. So uh, what ISIS was in Syria, where uh, people would look at, at, at um, uh, for example, I mean, Syrians tend to be more secular than, than many Arabs tend to be. But people would look at the branch of al-Qaeda in Syria that, that fought and took over a city from um, uh, ISIS, city of Raqqa. And they looked at them as liberators, Al-Qaeda as liberators from these people, because Al-Qaeda is more liberal in Syria than, you know, than these guys It's are. funny you say that. I was wondering if Al-Qaeda is going to start fighting them. <laughs> well, there, there is a, 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 right now there's a, a, a subtle form of fighting taking place, mm -hmm. which is that by declaring himself caliph, the head of the Islamic State, um, Abu Bakr um, al-Baghdadi, um, uh, has put himself above al-Qaeda. Mm. He put himself oh. above Ayman um, uh, al-Zawahri, who is the head of al-Qaeda. He's the head of the community, this guy. The caliph is the head of the Islamic community, mm -hmm. theoretically. Mm -hmm. So Zawahri has yes. to pledge allegiance to him. Right. So uh, he's also trying to uh, uh, recruit as many al-Qaeda chapters. Uh, so there is this competition now going on between al-Qaeda on the one hand and the Islamic State on the other. He's splitting that, yeah. the jihadi movement. And just like the Palestinian movement has also been split. So we're going to take another commercial break, our last and believe it or not, we only have one segment of the show left. And some of you are probably sitting out there saying, I, I didn't understand this. I, I, this is too confusing. It's too complicated. I think I'm just going to go, you know, uh, eat a cupcake and take a break. But uh, we don't want that. What we want to oh. do is when we come back. Yeah, just James, let me just finish this and then please share. Uh, when we come back from break, I'd like you to talk a little bit about because now there's this new thing going on in the Iraqi government with this new government. And, tr and let's try to focus on. Are there any good options, and what should we do? Yes, James? Uh, yes, I wanted to point out here that uh, for people who might be starting to be apathetic, that there's a huge humanitarian crisis going on in Iraq right now. Over 200,000 people have been displaced or killed. Uh, there are people dying of thirst and hunger and so on. And this, this particular group uh, is growing, and they have tremendous armaments. They have over $2 billion worth of assets. And their, their goal is equivalent to the, the Nazi type of goal. Uh, they want to take, they want, well, the caliphate, they're asserting themselves over all Muslims. 
and their goal is to take over all of the Muslim uh, nations, and also to 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 fight Hamas and then and and then fight Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is a broadening uh, threat, I believe, that the, the United States needs to pay attention to and uh, take some kind of action, uh, unless they just want to allow them to fill a void, a vacuum in a weak country like Iraq with a weak government and weak soldiering. Uh, and, and build up a base for further uh, attacks and a humanitarian uh, well, crisis and genocide. Okay, well, that's one opinion. And when we come back from our station break, we're going to hear what Jim Galvin has to say about that. So don't go away. This is the Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Hi there. Welcome back. Well, I see we don't have a lot of time left, and we probably don't have time for another caller because there are some things we want to talk about. And James, just before the break, was uh, was expressing what a lot of people are feeling, what you get from reading the news, which is these ISIS people are, you know, holding these all these people hostage. They're terrible. We need to do something. And uh, James Gelvin, our professor from UCLA history, uh, modern Middle Eastern history, has something to share about that. And then we're going to go really to the core of what are we supposed to do. So, Jim, what were, you, what were your thoughts about what James was saying, which is, I think, expresses what a lot of people feel? Well, um, obviously, this is, this is pure evil, these people. Um, and... Um, the uprisings have taken a bad turn, but this was the worst of the bad turns that they've taken. What can be done about these people? Um, what can be done is, I think, we've already begun the process, which is that the process begins with the political process being restructured in Iraq, getting rid of the hated 
uh, Nuri al-Maliki, opening up the government to um, other groups that have been pretty much discriminated against and worse, uh, such as Sunnis and Kurds, um, and uh, uh, on the basis of a national unity government, winning back those elements of the population that have been alienated. Now, these are the same parts of the population that the United States was able to utilize in getting rid of al-Qaeda uh, in 2007. Um, they are now with uh, ISIS or the Islamic State simply because they hate the government that much. People mm. were not watching, but in the winter of uh, this, uh, this past year, there were mass demonstrations in the Sunni areas of Iraq. Those demonstrations were peaceful, but they were put down with force. That's the point at which various tribal leaders began to arm their populations. And that was uh, after that, when ISIS came rolling into town, these guys said basically, you hate Maliki, we hate Maliki, let's work together on this stuff. It's not that they're ideologically committed to ISIS. It's mm -hmm. that they are more uh, ideologically committed to hating what Maliki has done to Iraq. So um, do you feel that this bombings that the United States has engaged in is a sensible response to the humanitarian crisis that's going on with the Yazidis, but that there's a longer-term political transformation that is finally beginning to take place and that we can be optimistic about, maybe? Uh, yes, I do, actually. I think that, um, I mean, number one, the humanitarian crisis is for real. And um, we don't know how many people are trapped in, on Mount Sinjar, but uh, estimates are well, starting at 40,000 uh, to begin with. Um, and uh, there is associated with that a bombing campaign there as well um, to uh, try to uh, create passageways for these people down the mountains to get them uh, over onto the other side of northern Iraq into Kurdish territory where they would be relatively safe. Um, so that's something that's, that, that, that's going on. I'm not a big fan of foreign intervention. I think that wherever we have done that, uh, starting with Iraq in 2003, we've screwed up dramatically. Um, yeah. I think that, um, you know, uh, in Libya, uh, we left the situation, uh, we, we won, we left. We, now there's a civil war going on in Libya, for example. Um, we intervened into the political process in Yemen um, and now what you have is the, the uh, old dictator and his people um, fighting it out against the old loyal opposition. And the people who actually created the revolution in Yemen have been eliminated from the political process. The United States has really been on the wrong side of every single one of the Arab uprisings, with the exception of Libya, which we abandoned immediately. <laughs> devices. So w there's not a lot for Americans to feel proud of since 2011. What about this new Iraqi government that's coming in? You know, it's always things are expressed as Shi and Sunni and Alawite and all of that. I can't even keep track of who's doing what to whom. Do, do you see some hope in this new government? Who are these people? Well, uh, Abadi is a member of the same, uh, the, the um, new prime or prime minister designate, if he can put together a government within the next 60 days. 
Um, he is a member of the same party as Maliki. He is Shia. Um, he uh, is uh, somebody who uh, has a certain relationship with Iran. Um, uh, he actually, uh, everybody's playing games of chicken here, by the way. So the United States uh, threatened not to do anything unless Maliki stepped down. Maliki said, okay, fine, don't do anything. I'm not going to step down. We'll watch um, uh, ISIS take over. Uh, Abadi basically said, if the Americans don't do anything, let's bring the Iranians in. Everybody's playing this game of chicken. Okay? But Abadi at this point is somebody who is um, uh, capable of actually uh, bringing together a national unity government. And I say that because, not because I know the guy very well or know his history very well, but I know that uh, he is uh, being forced to by the two most important players, who are the Americans and the Iranians. They're both attempting to create this national unity government. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon that suddenly the Iranians are no longer the devil, but they have become our new friends. But hey, you know, I got, I got a better one for you. you know, what's that? We're fighting people who are fighting uh, um, uh, Bashar al-Assad. You know, ISIS is fighting Bashar al-Assad right now. We're fighting ISIS. You know, so are we right. on pro-Syrian? You know, it's, like it's, it's very, it's very, very odd what's going on at this point. At <laughs> some time, you know, basically. You know, you really do have to sit down and take a stiff one, take a stiff drink. <laughs> so we had, today we've had Professor James Galvin, whose solution to the problems in Iraq and the Middle East is let's all take a drink. And, <laughs> as, and as you all know, all of those people who follow Inside Out, I am totally against alcohol, drugs, and all of that stuff. So what did the rest of us get to do, Jim? I, I have no idea what life would be like without <laughs> alcohol, drugs, and the rest of this stuff. <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know how you guys feel. I'm, I'm assuming that half of our audience, if you've stuck with this, is more confused than they were before, which let, is a good thing. Let me intervene here for a second. I okay, have, and we only have a minute. Okay. R literally, yes. People should pick up a pen and paper and write the following uh, URL down. All right. Blog, B-L-O-G dot O-U-P dot com. This is the Oxford University Press blog. I have an article on it. Then do a search for my name, Gelvin, G-E-L-V-I-N. I have the history of ISIS up there uh, in uh, a very short space. Um, so I think that people would be able to sort of decipher it in that way. That's wonderful. Thank you for that tip. I can't believe that the time is up. But I feel, I mean, seriously, I think that people who've been listening may have gotten more confused by mm -hmm. the facts. But isn't that wonderful? Because I think part of the problem that we have had as Americans is we get very little information we want to form an opinion so we can take action. You know, we are the people of the Wild West. Just give me a gun and tell me who to shoot. And then <laughs> everything is going to be okay. And, you know, what I think what we're seeing over and over is we don't know who to shoot. We don't know what to do. We're, our hands are not clean either. And things are more, and life is more complicated 
than we want to believe. James, please give us a real quick vision of what we're doing next week. Okay. Well, obviously, uh, this theme of next week is very tied in with what we've been talking about, such as the theme, there is no business as usual. Are you ready to stand for something? Many of us feel overwhelmed by the demands of daily life. There's climate change. There's uh, paralysis of the political system. The schools have been turned into war zones, international war zones, uh, threats uh, of, of security, safety, and well-being. There's no business as usual anymore, no usual weather, etc., etc. Our world is changing. Uh, and unless we join with others and take a stand, we really wind up having very little say. So let's talk about it next week. Let's uh, see what we can do about taking a stand and joining forces with those who, uh, with whom we can uh, create some momentum for the kind of world we want to live in. And now a final word from Beth. Thank you, James. Isn't it a shame that our world is so rent apart by people who are, all have the same problem? They're thinking of themselves and not each other. <laughs> and that's, you know, I always say there's only one problem, and that's the problem of human consciousness. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could start getting informed and start caring about one another and stop just putting each other in categories, but really trying to understand each other from the inside out. So who knows where this conversation is going, but I don't think it's over. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Listen for the next edition of Inside Out with Beth Green and James Maynard next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have a great week.